in the simplest outline I've seen of Romans by Rob Ventura, and he does have a more developed one, but perhaps the one that's just right, easy to uh, chew on, he just broke Romans into these five main sections, um, and we are in this first one, right in the midst of it, uh, and have been for several Sundays and will be for a couple more. But he encapsulates all that's being really unpacked here under one word, sin. 64 verses of Romans, though Paul didn't write them in verses. I didn't count the sentences, but it'd probably be different in Greek anyway. 64 verses for us, plowing over and over and over and over, or beating on the drum of what 118 calls all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why dwell so long on something so hard, so depressing? Uh, because there's, there's a lesson here or an important truth, that foundation that Paul is laying. John Stott put it this way, until the law has done its work of exposing and condemning our sin, we are not ready to hear the gospel of justification. It's coming in the last part of chapter three, and by the time we get to chapter five, we'll be in tears over the beauty of it. But for now, we continue to walk through the poop in order to get to the beauty. Piper put it this way, the gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone simply does not land on us as overwhelmingly good news until we have some deeper sense of our sinfulness and our hopelessness before God. I'm gonna break there for just a second and interject a few thoughts. This is something we, I think in today's common language of we are broken, we can easily lose. What is to drive us to Jesus more than anything else more than our sadness, more than our brokenness, more than our weariness, more than our pain, more than our emptiness, is our sinfulness, our ungodliness. Our sadness, brokenness, weariness, pain, emptiness are not what prevent us from heaven forever with God, where there won't be those things. Those are the painful symptoms that are the result of one thing, sin. While Jesus died to heal us of all these symptoms, and we are in process of beginning to experience that, he died most of all to heal us or deliver us from sin, our own sin against him. And that is what is really wrong with the world and with us, and that is why the gospel is such good news. So parents, let me encourage you in your training and teaching and raising of your children as you seek to proclaim the gospel to them to keep in mind all of these truths and young people growing up in Christian homes who are experiencing some of the very things that verses 17 and 18 today will describe, the blessings and advantages. We all still need here, as Paul is teaching us by the inspiration of the Spirit, a sound theology of sin. Why damnation is such a deserved consequence of it, how it profoundly affects any human's relationship with God, and how incredible then Christ's work to deliver us from it is. And then Piper, back to Piper's quote, we are so resistant to seeing it and feeling it. 
and then later in that same sermon. His aim in all this painful diagnosis of the disease of sin is to make the world aware of its need for the gospel of justification by grace through faith. And the wonderful way it fits our condition and meets our need for forgiveness and for righteousness. So this is the syllogism we looked at a couple of weeks ago that might just be a good reminder here that when we don't see, understand, grasp theologically the holiness and righteousness of God accurately, then we don't see how wicked and evil sin is, including our own or maybe especially our own. And as a result of that, we can't see why the punishment for sin is, of God's wrath is so deserved and therefore we cannot see how desperately we need Christ and grace from God and the gospel and understanding those rightly and correctly. So that's our encouragement to continue to plow through this section, even though it may at some points feel exasperating how long God is going on or perhaps how slow Pastor Rob is going. Um, there are preachers who take chapter two and two sermons. Uh, I think we're on number five and, and not going to make it, even though I prophesied on Thursday that I was going to. So Romans 2.17 marks the first time that Paul speaks directly in this section to the Jews by name, making it really clear now if, if it may have well been that it's in verse one of chapter two is where he really began to address them, but here clearly, so I would propose to you that this is really the evidence he is now going to give for a third group of people to show them that they're not okay with God and they are actually under his wrath. So we've seen, in a nutshell, the second half of chapter one, the pagan world. People who have either no teaching, no communication, no news about God, just living out there and have no right regard for him and how they have no excuse even by the revelation of God through nature. Then in the first half of chapter two, we're seeing moral religious people, whether that's the Jews or I would argue even broader, all people, Gentiles included in that, and how they believe their works, their way of living, they judge in the language of this section that they are okay and that their works will save them and not condemn them. But now Paul turns the guns fully on the Jews themselves, the ethnic Jews, aims at the group that might be most deceived of all and might of all groups have the hardest time accepting salvation is by grace. 2, 17 to 29 deals with those Jews who believe wrongly that two things in particular ensure their salvation. And this is why I wanted to get to the end of the chapter, to get through both, but we're just going to get through the first one. But it's what Moo calls the two most distinguishing marks of being Jewish. Having God's law and all kinds of things that go with that and uh, being circumcised. So all these groups in Romans feel more right than the other groups. Each of them feels more righteous than the other groups. And yet the third time now will be that each one actually stands in graver danger before God's judgment. Quick outline, and we will unpack it this way, and we're not gonna get to the last two lines today as originally planned, 
but just so you see the entirety of the thought here. So you're going to see that he opens with Jew, and by the end of this section, at the end of chapter 2, he's going to kind of redefine what that is. But at this point, he's laying out reason number one, how they consider themselves safe, and it's a long section. goes all the way through verse 24, proving in that as well why they are wrong. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, and I think we'll work into chapter 3 as well, at least that's the aim. The second reason many Jews wrongly consider themselves safe because of circumcision and how God actually defines that. Very quickly, one potentially sensitive matter um, that I want to just briefly touch on, lest anyone be deterred from God's main point here, especially in a culture where we're hypersensitized to racial sin. Why the Jews are being condemned here is not because of their race or ethnicity, but because of their spiritual condition, as God sees it, even if they don't see it. Jesus choosing to be a Jew when he came to earth and declaring to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. And Paul being a Jew and arguing all kinds of things, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book of Romans and how he longs for them to be saved, both show that God is not anti-Jewish. The Father, Jesus the Son, and Paul are all against anyone thinking he'll be able to enter heaven by anything other than faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's the point of this section of Romans, and the Jews are an illustration of that, but as we'll focus on at the end, Gentiles can certainly be guilty of many of these things as well. Would you again follow along as we read verses 17 through 24, this unit of thought. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that no one must commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Heavenly Father, what you charge the Jews with here in Romans 2 is helpful for us in assessing things even in our own lives. So help us grasp vividly what you are saying here. We want in no way to diminish what you say to them. We certainly don't want to exclude ourselves. We acknowledge that much in this text can also indict us Gentiles. So may it drive us to look more to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Please use this portion of Romans to purge sin from this body of believers, from this minister, from each son and daughter, of yours who is listening and looking at it. 
And by it, may you transform us to be more like our sinless Savior who came to deliver us from sin. We pray in his name and power. Amen. So verses 17 to 20 then kind of initiate or launch or set up the first of the two reasons here for why many Jews wrongly consider themselves safe from God's wrath. And we're going to break this four-verse section up into two sections. First of all, God's favor in the 17 and 18, and then God's intention in 19 and 20, as we'll note. So the first basis that Jews can put a false wrong confidence in is just identifying as a Jew or having that. Whether Jew here means Hebrew, Israelite, um, it's a name by birthright that they had to be overarching within God's covenant people. It's a name of privilege, as we will see. And I'm told it actually means praise, meaning people who are to bring praise to God. And if that's the case, then you'll see why verses 23 and 24 uh, would be so convicting to them because they are here to praise God and bring praise to God. And they may feel that they are. They may say that they are. But God's point here is their actual living actually dishonors his name. So here are the advantages or blessings, five of them, the last one kind of being the reason why, but all of them captured here. First, relying on the law. That they, rather than being ignorant of God's law, rather than rejecting God's law, actually embrace it, acknowledge it from God, lean on for it for support, rest in it. We'll see uh, next week, I think, in verse 2 of chapter 3 that the Jews were entrusted with the very oracles of God. That's the people group he gave it to. They counted on this gift uh, by having it and the possession of it as their righteousness, and God is going to show that it's not. You might say it's a little bit like they were counting on having the driver's manual, making them a qualified driver, simply because they'd read it thoroughly, they'd memorized it, they could probably possibly list all of the rules of driving to it, but they hadn't actually driven, at least not according to it. Secondly, they boasted in God. This is a good thing. These are not condemnations at this point. This is part of what was so great about the Jews and the nation of Israel is that they spoke so highly of God. Uh, you can see it throughout the Old Testament, but the Psalms probably show it to us most vividly. That over and over and over, they declare their trust in God, their allegiance. They sang these songs. It was all part of their worship. And Jeremiah notes the beauty of this, that what we should be boasting in, if we want a confidence, what is the greatest investment of our lives is that we understand and know God. We boast in him because God delights in that. The third advantage they were given is they got to know the will of God. Next slide, please. That was to have, and we'll see it coming up in verse 20, that they had the embodiment of knowledge about God and his will and the truthfulness of it. This wasn't a, a false document. God had given them this revelation. They got the creator's and the designer's own guide for life. They knew his will. They approved what is excellent or what is most important. They weren't led astray into the wrong things or false things or lesser things. They were given what God declares to be best, most significant. 
They had God's yardstick for all of this to understand how to live. And all of this because of this last blessing that really covers why the other four flow out. They all got to be instructed from the law. They were raised in it. They were catechized in it. They memorized it. They studied it. They spoke of it much. But God charged the Jews that they not only were to know it, but that they were to teach it to future generations of Jews, but also, as we'll see, to the whole world. Now God, or Paul shifts from being instructed in the word, that last thought, to instructing others from being a student to being a teacher. And this is where Paul will soon quickly hijack them. Verses 19 and 20 lay out God's intention for the Jews that they were to be these four things. They were to be confident in the fact that they could be a guide to the blind because they were given uh, the light, the truth, the direction. Uh, if you just think of my, thy word is a, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, that kind of idea. A light to those who are in darkness. Both of these descriptions seem to come from Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, where the Lord says, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is the same motif then that Jesus, we just saw it in the Advent in John 1, Jesus being the light and life of men, and then what he also unpacked right away in the Sermon on the Mount and continues for the church and for believers today in the New Covenant. This whole idea and imagery of light. So Israel was to be. They also were an instructor of the foolish. The Jews often saw the Gentiles as fools and themselves wise uh, because they had this teaching and training from God. But it's the idea of teaching always is to turn foolish thinking into wise thinking to mature people from childish things to adult or mature things. And again, at the end of this list is another description of this blessing. They had in the law the embodiment, the encapsulation of all the knowledge and revelation they had to have and the truth. Incredible textbook that God gave them to follow both for their own lives and for their instruction. Such advantages that most of the rest of the world and people of time never got to have. This was part of how God intended to bless the nations where he says in Micah chapter four, it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, next slide please, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it and many nations will come and say, let us gather up, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So everything to this point is great, encouragement, acknowledging all the things and blessings that God has given and the intentions for those blessings. And now the tables get turned suddenly, much like Jesus turned the tables in the temple on the money, uh, those trafficking in verses 21 to 24, here is why the Jews are wrong, why ultimately they're going to bear the accusation of dishonoring God rather than honoring him. 
And Paul does this through four rhetorical questions. He could have listed dozens more, but here's just a smattering of proof of why many Jews have what they have and what they do does not equate to righteousness. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? One of the great dangers, obviously, or, or, uh, for all of us is when we are teaching a truth to others, our children, to other believers, whatever it might be, is that we can come to focus entirely on how they need to hear it and not on how we still need to be taught and instructed by it. Then three commandments that he all draws from the Ten Commandments as a sampling of their failure with the law. The point here is not just the literal, most narrow meaning possible of a certain command or the external adherence, but ultimately where he's going by the end of the chapter is the spirit behind the law and the internal transformation and obedience. So stealing, first of all, the Eighth Commandment, It's great that they preach against stealing. It is proper, it is right, it is excellent. But do you not realize, Jews, that often you either willfully, and there's a couple of ways these are all kind of thought of, either they willfully went against this, uh, perhaps behind closed doors, or uh, in whatever ways that they would carry these things out. So if you think back to Proverbs, the move, for example, the moving of a boundary stone would be stealing. The uh, differing weights that they would have in their bags for weighing out food would be a matter, a way in which they stole. So they might have just done it blatantly right in front of others without others knowing that they were stealing from them. Or that the law about stealing applies to far more than just tangible physical items, that it has to do with time, it has to do with all kinds of ways in which people, other people that own something, we take from or take advantage from. Then from uh, the seventh commandment, uh, you say that one should, must not commit adultery, and yet the question is, do you commit adultery? Once again, excellent teaching, but do you either willfully commit adultery, whether it's by marrying in ways that God has said not to, or whether it's in any other Or do you just not realize that the law encompasses far more, as the Sermon on the Mount illustrates, far more than just the physical, but also the heart, lust, and any corrupting in the mind or with the body of God's singular design for sexual purity. And then finally, and this is the hardest one, you who abhor idols. So again, probably teaching the first and second commandments, excellent teaching that God alone is to be the God, We are to have no other gods that compete against him or that we ever dare put above him. And it could be the robbing of temples is the difficult line. There's all kinds of debate about what this might have been. There were times in history where Israel stole items from temples, melted those things down and used them for, sold them for profit. Uh, It could mean in a more spiritual sense that when you go to the temple to give your tithe to the Lord, that you actually don't give the full tithe, you rob from him. Um, But again, it could be much broader than that and just speak of we create temples on this world, world, not physical ones, but mental ones. We idolatrously worship within those. But I think God's bigger point in all of this is when humans are given all of these things and can even teach other people about them, They still cannot 
and will not keep the law. Here's how Paul will eventually say it in Romans 10. Long time, at least a year from now. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness in that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They don't really get it. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They seek to establish their own. And they won't submit themselves to the one single way in which God has provided his righteousness for them. What a summary statement of what's taking place here in Romans chapter 2. That brings us then to verses 23 and 24. The result is that their disobedience, these hypocritical things that they are doing, are actually doing far more damage than they realize. William Barclay says to the Jew, a passage like this, and the next one on circumcision as well, must have come as a shattering experience. And not only does Paul make an incredibly damning statement in verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, but then he adds fuel to that fire by referencing Old Testament passages, perhaps Ezekiel 36, but other places in Isaiah and places where God just says in that time Israel was in in exile because of a punishment and discipline because they had blasphemed by the way that they lived, not by their words, but by the way that they were living, blasphemed uh, the name of the Lord among the Gentiles. In other words, the rest of the world is looking to you to know who God is and why they should care anything about him. And you are giving them a terrible picture of his holiness and righteousness. Rather than Gentiles coming to glorify God, God's purpose through his people, they actually will deride it and mock it because of the inconsistency of the Jews. So many people claiming Christ disgrace the holy name of Christ by how they live. Two thoughts here, first from Doug Moo. By failing to demonstrate in day-to-day living the qualities of the law they profess to love, they not only fail to be the light that God wants them to be, they actually harm the reputation of God. And then Schreiner makes a nice connection back to chapter 1. Just as the Gentiles in Romans 1 failed to bring him glory by repudiating the revelation available from the created order, The Jews failed to honor him by practicing the law that was vouchsafed to them. They still hoped for deliverance through the law and the old covenant, but that covenant had led only to judgment, not salvation. So in chapter 3, not sure we'll get there next Sunday, but in the next couple of Sundays, I think before Christmas, the question is, are Jews any better off despite all these blessings and advantages? And Paul's simple answer is no, not at all. Everybody is under sin. All that the Jews here believed made them righteous before God actually condemned them before God. Given all the advantages they had that the Gentiles didn't have. And it would be great here just to flow to the end of the chapter and get through the second reason, but I do want to allow us enough time to walk back through Romans 2 and think about its application to Gentiles. 
So think first of all of these principles not being exclusively a Jewish problem. Here's how Rob Ventura put it. They had a profession of faith without being in true possession of it. And then he makes the application to us, not unlike the lives of many religious people or Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles in our day. Here are some of the characteristics. They talked the talk, but they did not walk the walk. They were catechized, but they're not converted. They were religious, but they were not the real deal. They had ceremonies, but they were not saved by Christ. They had a form of godliness, and this is from uh, 2 Timothy, I believe. They had a form of godliness, but denied its very power working inside of them. All of this to say there are people who seem to belong to the covenant people of God, who are actively involved among the people, the covenant people of God, who are not the covenant people of God. Perhaps people sitting here today, listening online, Gentiles too can have this sense, hey, I'm keeping the laws of God, the commands of God, the general things, decently, sufficiently, so that they have no sense that they actually are not fulfilling it to the level that God's holiness requires and demands so they don't see themselves as guilty and in need of forgiveness because they don't see themselves as sinners deserving God's wrath. And then they don't repent and ask in faith for Christ's righteousness to be given. And this is where the gospel is so beautiful. Whether you look at it on the back of the bulletin or on the, we'll call it the front of the bulletin that leads with the gospel and the story of how it's unpacked there. But just, this is why Jesus was born at Christmas, to begin to live out a life perfectly and keep God's law perfectly without ever failing in one measure of it and even to show us how that was done so that he could then lay down his life for us on the cross, suffering and bearing the penalty of our sin for every sinner who asks to receive that payment and penalty to be applied to them to be forgiven with the blood that he shed on the cross and in his death as he has died, was buried, and rose again. Again, just want to encourage you. That's the starting place. Gentile or Jew is to let go of your own sense in any of these things. I've been blessed so greatly by God. I have all these great roles that I think God is all in. And to find out at the end of it all, it all was without Christ. And therefore, it all was not righteous. For those of us who do trust completely in Christ and who know that all sin is to be repented of, let's walk back through and think of these same principles applied not only to the law, but to the gospel. I don't think that's distorting the possible applications here. To think of these principles, not only to Jews, but to Gentiles and even to believing born-again Gentiles. Like the Jews in Romans 2, 17 and 18, Gentile Christians, God's people by covenant, can call themselves and identify themselves as Christ followers, can say and know that they need to rely on the gospel, perhaps can spit it all out to you in a five-minute rendition that is fabulous. They can boast in God. They can know his will, perhaps have more scripture than you memorized. They can approve of everything excellent with their words because they've been instructed well. 
These certainly are, uh, can be kids growing up in Christian homes as well. Yet, still live in ways that do not reflect those things and are actually a poor testimony to the Lord. So, working off the idea, going back to verse 2 of chapter 4, several sermons ago, do the kindness, forbearance, patience, blessings, gifts from God that he's given to you, none of which you deserve, none of which are owed to you or earned by you. But are those kindness and those gifts leading you to humbly rejoice with thanksgiving, awed by his grace to you? And are they, as verse 4 of chapter 2 asserts, leading you to repentance, humbly recognizing the sin yet that so offends God, even in our hearts as believers? I know that I find a strong tendency in my own heart that when I don't repent quickly and firmly, diligently, perseveringly of a sin in my heart or in my life, be it gossip, judgment, criticism, lust, lying, laziness, but the longer I don't repent, the less evil that sin feels. Piper, either the same sermon or another sermon, same text. One of the season, reasons Paul dwells on the demonstration of sinfulness in Romans 1-3 to is that we are so resistant to seeing it and feeling it. That's what he said earlier. We find ways of avoiding the issue. Boy, boy are these spot on. We find ways of avoiding the issue, of softening the indictments, of escaping the evidences, and there are endless ways to do that, to admit a little bit of it while not being broken and humbled by it. Brokenness in the right way over our sin and the repentance that comes in humility are the gateway to paradise, and indeed they are the road to paradise. In this life, we never outgrow our need forever new experiences of brokenness and humility because of our sinfulness. Secondly, from Romans 2, 19 to 22, Gentile Christians, God's people by covenant, can feel sure and confident that we, with his word, because his word is the embodiment of knowledge and truth, we can be a guide to the blind, we can be a light, we can be an instructor, we can be a teacher. Because we have all of those advantages and yet not live our lives in accordance with those things. So those questions of do you teach others, your children, your spouse, perhaps in a church ministry, perhaps in another setting, it doesn't have to be a Bible study, it just can be any way in which we are communicating the law, the commands, the righteousness of God and yet fail to deal with those very same things in our own heart. Whether it's stealing or adultery or idolatry, like uh, this passage, or whether we wax eloquence about how evil someone's pride is, and we can, boy, can we see it in others, and we can preach against it and condemn it, and yet not die to ourselves. We can call somebody to forgive, look them right in the face and say, you need to forgive your dad, while we're harboring bitterness in our own hearts against somebody else. So do we teach God's truth without 
recognizing that first and foremost, and it starts with a preacher in the pulpit, we must first live it out. It's the most for our own lives, not for others. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. The gospel which we possess was not given to us only to be admired, talked of, and professed, but to be practiced. Ultimately, it's news, but to live in light of that news. And then third, but not finally, from verses 23 and 24, like the Jews there, Gentile Christians, God's people by covenant, can boast in the gospel. We can boast in the commands of God and what the New Testament does and the great blessings that come from living in accord to what God lays out and yet actually dishonor the gospel or God by not keeping them or not living, using a phrase from Philippians 1.27, not living worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Titus, which Paul was writing to tell Titus to teach this to all of the churches on the island of Crete. And it's under the section of slaves submitting to their masters, but it's so, so that's who the they is, but it's so applicable to all of us. In everything we are doing, we are to, love this word, adorn the doctrine of God. And then notice the title, our Savior. Our lives are to manifest and reflect a God as the light of the world, that we would have good works that others would see and would ultimately give glory to. Now, Peter does a beautiful job in his uh, letter of unpacking both the new covenant blessings and then the responsibility that comes with that. So, next slide. Thank you. Here's the blessings. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. So note that. That's the purpose in what we're given all these incredible identities for and blessings for. Because he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, you had no identities, identity, and now you are God's people, the highest standing a human can have. Once you'd not receive mercy, now you have. All those blessings, now here's the response. Live here like sojourners and exiles. This is not my home anymore. I'm headed for heaven and I'm preparing for heaven and I'm living in light of heaven. So I'm gonna abstain from the passions of the flesh, warring against my soul, and I'm gonna keep my conduct among the Gentiles or the world or the unbelievers honorable so that when they do speak against me as an evildoer, when they accuse me of things, over time, my own reputation, my faithfulness, my perseverance will let them see good deeds and by God's mercy and grace lead them to glorify God on the day he visits us. So just good questions. Who do peop- what do people think of God when they're watching you? What does your marriage say about our God? What does your household, your family, the way you're conducting, living, spending money, spending time say about our God? What is the way you work and in your work world? What is your message about God as people watch you, even if they never hear anything other than he's a Christian? In the school community, in all the other places that we plug our lives in, is my life commending God to others or speaking poorly of something 
that is most excellent. Last thought. This is a bigger one. How is Romans 1 to 3 shaping your view of sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness? And especially, how is it shaping the view of your own sinfulness, the sin that yet remains, unfortunately, in us as believers? As we continue through this portion, exposing every human and every kind of human to be sinful, let's continue to personalize this. The parable in Luke 18 that Jesus told is such a powerful depiction of two ends of the spectrum of people who see themselves as righteous and people who see themselves as unrighteous. And it's familiar to us and you can see the lines highlighted there. And just Jesus' response was completely unimpressed with the Pharisee or the majority of Jews, if you want to make the application, or the majority of mankind. I'm thankful that I am not as bad as other people. And then tout all the things you do that are obedience to the law externally. And then just the awareness by the tax collector of the sinfulness of his life and the need for mercy from God. You turn your attention again to the bulletin and the verse that's highlighted there in Matthew 21, 121. And just urge you to tie this, tie the gospel of Jesus being born. So in Matthew 121, we have the, the description, the prophecy, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and here is the purpose of his life, to save his people from their sins. And then in 1 Peter 2, 24, May we see Christ bearing our sin in his body on the cross. So we will, next slide please, die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord Jesus, please protect us from the very things that you condemn in this passage, whether we are a Jew or a Gentile. Protect us from presumption, from assuming we're far more righteous than we are, Protect us from hypocrisy of being more concerned that other people obey your law than we. And protect us from the deadening to our sin that keeps rising up within us. Lest we dishonor your great and holy name among the nations. We long, Lord Jesus, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Help us, O oh God. Be merciful to us as sinners and help us by your power to do so for your glory. We ask in your name and in your grace and in your son. Amen.